Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary Podcast. This week we're continuing our sermon series called Misunderstanding Jesus. In this series, we're revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. Pastor Jason Coker's message this week is called, He Came to Bring the Sword? We're looking at Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, where Jesus says that he did not come to bring peace, but rather a sword, that he came to turn people against each other. What does that mean? Why did Jesus say that? Couldn't there have been some other way to get his point across? Listen closely as Jason unpacks this verse for us and helps us understand what Jesus really might be meaning when we look at the text beneath the text. Before we get started, though, I'd love to invite you to connect with us on social media. Maybe like us on Instagram or Facebook, whatever suits your fancy. We would love to connect with you and hear your thoughts about this sermon series and other ways that we can connect and just help in any way that we can. Now, here's Jason with the sermon. He came to bring the sword. I don't know if this is obvious or not. I don't know if you have ever considered this or not, uh, but um, this is my church. Uh, So I'm not just the pastor here. I'm part of this congregation. Um, and it was a difficult weekend. And the easiest thing that we dealt with this weekend was clean feces off the front steps today. Um, So that's just where I'm at, just so you know. So if I get weird over some, like, odd thing today while I'm speaking, that's why. Um, So I'm really grateful For you guys, I'm really grateful for this place, and I'm really grateful for what God is doing here. Uh, We did just start a sermon series called Misunderstanding Jesus. Uh, I love this little graphic here. It says, revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. And so the purpose of this series really is to address some of those really strange or difficult or confusing or maybe just really... uh, misused teachings of Jesus, and we're going to tackle some of the hard ones. Last week, we talked about the Beatitudes, and we did the Beatitudes first because it really sets, I think, an important framework for understanding some of the later things that Jesus says that are hard, including this one. So today, uh, just to jump in, the one that we're going to tackle is Matthew chapter 10. If you have a Bible, you're welcome to turn there, of course. If you don't have a Bible, there are some Bibles in some of the pewbacks in front of you. Uh, Otherwise, we will have the passage up on the screen. But Matthew chapter 10, uh, verse 34 says this, Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And one's foes will be the members of one's own household. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves her son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up the cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. One of my least favorite 
things that Jesus ever said because it's so easily misused and abused and misunderstood. It's so easy when you are in a place of anger or frustration to say, aha, Jesus said sometimes you got to cut them down, right? And now I'm feeling like now is the time to reach out in anger and frustration. Uh, m- most of you know our two youngest daughters because they've been around the congregation for the past couple years, and now they're both off to college, so we don't get to see them very much. But uh, Alana and Judah, our two youngest daughters, had a really interesting relationship. The middle daughter, Judah, can be, um, can, can be like a bit antagonistic towards her younger daughter, like older siblings often are, like I was with my younger brother. You know, I, I live to torment my younger brother. And Judah, you know, didn't torment Alana the same way I tormented Ian. Uh, Judah just learned how to sort of push Alana's buttons. And if you know Alana, she's a super laid back kid. She's woman now, excuse me, she's 18 years old. She's a super laid back person, very peaceable, easy to get along with. But man, when she was like three and four years old and Judah was five and six years old, we'd hear them playing in the other room and they would be playing and Judah would just start, start in on Alana, right? Just antagonizing her, pushing her little buttons, pulling her little levers. And in Alana's voice, you could hear like the frustration beginning to rise. And then eventually Alana, poor Alana would just pop and she would like attack Judah. And, uh, you know, she'd like, you know, be scratching her and pulling her hair. And one of the funniest things that she ever did was one time they got into a little scuffle like this and they got into like, you know, physical altercation and Alana pulled out like a chunk of Judah's hair, pulled out a chunk of Judah's hair and then showed it to her and said, I got your hair, sissy. Janelle and I are like pacifists, so we were like shocked, you know, we were scandalized by that behavior. But sometimes when somebody makes you very angry or wrongs you, like, you don't just want to hurt them, you want to show them <laughs> that you hurt them back. I think oftentimes uh, this passage gets used in that way. We feel a kind of righteous indignation when things don't go the way we think they should. And then it's convenient to point to Matthew 10, verse 34, and say, well, Jesus said he didn't come to bring peace. He came to bring a sword. And so what does that mean? Does it mean that Jesus is saying that there are times when violence is the way for us to resolve our problems? Well, I think we know that that's not what Jesus is saying. Because in Matthew 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Jesus very plainly says, you've heard it said in the past, referring to the old law, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Uh, But I say, love your enemy. Now, I'm pretty sure loving your enemy means not physically attacking them. It, It definitely means more than that. It definitely means more than just to not harm somebody physically. But at the very least, when Jesus says, I tell you that the way of God, the way of the kingdom of God is to love your enemies, at the very least, he's saying we shouldn't kill them. And so we know that Jesus wasn't teaching us that there is literally a time when God would instruct us to pull out our swords or pull out our fists or pull out our guns and just give people what they deserve. 
It's, and it's not just that Jesus said that we should love our enemies. We also know because uh, in addition to the words of Jesus, we have the works, the actions of Christ. And every time Jesus was presented with an opportunity for violence, he said no. In fact, we know that many of Jesus' own followers were zealots. They were looking for violent overthrow of the Romans who were oppressing them. And Jesus continually said, no, that's not what we're here to do. For example, when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, right, there's that famous story. Peter draws his sword. He's thinking, now's the time when, you know, we have come to bring a sword, not peace. He draws his sword and chops off the ear of the Roman centurion, and Jesus stops him. No, Peter, what are you doing? And then, of course, he heals the Roman centurion's ear. He fixes what Peter did when he resorted to violence. When he stood before Pilate and his accusers, he consistently didn't resist. Jesus instead submitted himself to violence rather than using violence. Isn't that exactly what we talk about when we talk about Jesus going to the cross? He submitted himself to those who were willing to do violence. So, so I think it's clear from Jesus' teachings and from his life that he isn't saying that there comes a time when to spread the good news of God, we must pull out our sword and actually hurt people. I don't think that's who Jesus is. However, on the other hand, while Jesus did consistently teach against the use of violence and against the use of, of the sword, Jesus did seem to cause division on occasion. Jesus certainly wasn't afraid to say things that would cause people to choose a side. Jesus said difficult, other difficult things like, the kingdom of God is like a road that is narrow and a gate that is small, and only a few will make that path. Only a few will be able to walk it. Whereas there's another path, a path that leads to destruction that's broad and wide and easy to walk on. There Jesus does seem to be indicating some kind of a division, and people fall on either side of that division, whatever that means. Jesus also said things like to the Pharisees, or to the Sadducees, the religious elite, people with power during his time, he pointed to them and their outward works of righteousness and called them whitewashed tombs. He said, don't be like these folks. They're like tombs that are full of death, but on the outside, they're really beautiful. Have you ever thought about that? Like when you show up at like a big fancy cemetery, they have you know, sepulchers there and large tombs, and they're just beautiful on the outside. We spare no expense to make sure that the outside of that artifice is honoring and beautiful and raises the status of those who are inside, but the people inside are just as dead as the people who lay in poor graves. So Jesus uses that picture to point out that the Pharisees are really no different than the people they condemn. So Jesus is willing to use language and to do things from time to time that, 
that while not necessarily violent and certainly not advocating violence, do seem to create a kind of division. And ultimately, that's why he was crucified. Jesus was crucified because he, he kept doing things and saying things that created so much division and so much frustration and so much anger that ultimately people were willing to kill him for it so that he would stop. That seems to be, in some ways, sort of the natural outcome of some of what Jesus said. A good example of that, uh, by the way, is last week we visited the Beatitudes in Matthew but if you turn to Luke's version of the Beatitudes, it's even more stark. It's even more of a contrast. Luke chapter 6, verse 24, is where Luke gives his version of the Beatitudes. Remember in Matthew, uh, Matthew's version of the Beatitudes, Jesus says, Blessed are you who are poor in spirit. And last week I said that that's often misused to, to claim that there's a kind of spiritual ladder by which we climb into God's favor. We become poor in spirit by being repentant or being sorrowful or being humble. And, and of course, being humble is a good thing, but that I said last week that's not really what Jesus was trying to say. I think Luke makes this even clearer when he says in Luke chapter 6, verse 24, blessed are you who are poor. We're going to pick it up actually in verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are people who exclude you and revile you and defame you on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for surely your reward is great in heaven. That's Luke's version of the Beatitudes. He takes all those people who are clearly not blessed, the people who have been excluded, who have been exploited, who have been subjugated by those who are in power, and he says, no, this group of people are now blessed because the kingdom of God has come to them. That's what we talked about last week. That's sort of Jesus' version of the good news. It's what he was quoting when he said, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach freedom to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind. He's saying that when the power of God comes, the kingdom of God comes, it is incredibly good news for the people in the world who have been consistently downtrodden and walked upon. It's good news for them. But here's what's really hard about Luke's version of the Beatitudes. He goes on to share the bad news. And I think sometimes we forget that the good news, the gospel, isn't just good news. If the gospel is good news for some people, Jesus says, then that means it's bad news for others. We often take the gospel and we so universalize it and so abstract it out that it has to be good for everybody. But Jesus pretty clearly and harshly says, no, that's not the case. Back to Luke, he says, you know, blessed are those who are poor, blessed are those who weep. And then he goes on and says, but woe to you who are rich, for you have received your reward. Woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who are laughing now, for you will mourn and weep. Jesus' message of good news for some people is bad news for others. 
And so, of course, it would make sense then that wherever Jesus would go and preach this bad news, that there would be people who would be upset about it. <laughs> they would rise up and say, uh, no, that's not what we're all about. No, we don't let those folks eat at our table. No, we don't share our wealth with those undeserving poor. No, we don't talk to Samaritans. No, we don't engage in relationships with Roman centurions. No, 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 we don't do that. Our entire civilization is built on excluding certain people and vilifying certain people. And when Jesus challenged those boundaries, there was a violent uprising against him. Because it meant that those boundaries had to leave. They had to disappear. They had to be erased. The poor now had to be included. Those who were mourning now had to be included in the comfort of God's grace and mercy. The Samaritans now had to be included in the worship that God was making available to all people. Uh, I've said this, I've quoted this passage a lot, it seems like this year, but you know, Paul's way of putting this is, there is now therefore no Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. All those old divisions don't make sense anymore because we've used those divisions to make sure that certain people have power and certain people don't. And so Jesus very sensibly, very reasonably, very logically declares that if God gets God's way, then all the people who have been frustrated and abused and beaten down are going to be much happier. Which means all those people who have benefited from people being abused and frustrated and beaten down are going to be upset. It's a good news, bad news situation. If you preach that message in certain places, you won't be received very well. So I get to teach, I get to teach social policy at Cal State San Marcos to undergraduate students. And this is one of the most important lessons of social policy is that for every social problem, pick a social problem, it doesn't matter, hunger, homelessness, uh, infant mortality. You know, one of the oldest social service programs in the United States is the Children's Bureau. It's a, depart it's a, a portion of the of Health and Human Services, Department of Health and Human Services now. The Children's Bureau was started in 1912 when the infant mortality rate in the United States was that 100 babies died for every 1,000 who were born. That was the infant mortality rate in the United States back in 1915, which is the first time we really measured it. Well, one of the reasons we started measuring it is because a group of women who thought that the conditions for children in the United States was deplorable decided to make a difference. And so they created the organization that became the Children's Bureau so that they could address things like infant mortality and child labor. Uh, infant mortality, by the way, used to be, uh, in 1915, uh, 100 babies died for every 1,000 who were born. Now, just by comparison, it's about seven. In the United States, for every 1,000 babies who are born, about seven of them die in the United States. We made a lot of progress in that, in that particular metric. But one of the other things they tackled was child labor. You know, in 1912, it was very common for families to send their kids off to work. Because we, there was tremendous poverty in the United States in the early part of the 20th century. And so just one of the ways that we handled that was we sent our kids to work. I mean, 
It made a lot of sense to have as many babies as you possibly could in the early part of the 20th century because chances were good that a few of them were going to die. And the more babies you had, that was, you know, more people in the household who could contribute to your income. You just had to do that to survive. And children were really popular in the textile industry as laborers because they were small enough to fit into the machines and fix problems when they broke. Uh, which meant that oftentimes kids would go in, you can imagine it's not very safe to crawl into a large piece of industrial machinery and attempt to fix it. And so, of course, kids were oftentimes maimed or killed in the industrial sector because of this. Now, now that's bad enough. I mean, it's bad enough for kids to be maimed or killed because of child labor conditions. But if kids are going to work every day, what aren't they doing every day? They're not going to school. That's right. And if kids aren't going to school, then they aren't gaining the one thing that we know will make the biggest difference in their lives economically, and that is an education. Right? You know what else they're not doing if they're going to work every day? This is a little less obvious, but it is just as important as education. They're not playing. What? It probably is. Thank you, Shauna. Play is a form of learning. And education is how we cognitively develop. And we know that if you take kids and they don't have the opportunity to play, then they don't have the opportunity to grow into the full being that God has created them to be. All of this to say, this is not in my notes, by the way, I apologize. All of this to say that we had a very real social problem in the United States in the early 20th century. And there were two groups primarily who were opposed to solving this problem. The first group is super obvious. Who didn't want us to outlaw child labor? Factory owners didn't want us to outlaw child labor because it was really cheap, really convenient labor, really plentiful labor. The second group that really didn't want to outlaw child labor, a little less obvious, were families. Because as soon as we outlawed child labor, we significantly cut their income. They were poor. This illustrates an incredibly important thing for us all to understand as members of any society, but especially a democratic society. And that important thing to understand is this. For every single problem in this world, there are losers, and we talk about the losers a lot, but there are also gainers. People who gain something from the problem. People who profit off of that problem existing. And so when you try to solve that problem, they fight it. They fight against it. The Children's Bureau was formed in 1912. Child labor wasn't outlawed until the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938. And even then, there was a giant exception written into the Fair Labor Standards Act, and that was children could still be used for agricultural labor. That's still true to this day. To this day, 25% of the produce that you purchase in the United States is picked by about a half a million children who are as young as six years old. It's still legal to do that here. Now, solving that problem is hard and difficult and complicated because when you try to take that away, you are hurting people's incomes. And you're totally overturning the equilibrium of the society that we all are accustomed to. 
Which is all just to say that when Jesus went around from town to town and said, blessed are you poor people and woe to you rich people, it upset some folks. It upset some folks. Because anytime we try to change the way things are, and especially when we say, God wants this change because it's good for everyone, people will rise up violently against it. And that's what Jesus is trying to say here. Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for the resistance they will experience when they go from town to town and they say, the good news is that God's power and presence are available here to all people, rich and poor, men and women, children and adults, Jews and Samaritans. In fact, you can include the Romans in there as well. This is what's happening in Matthew 10. By the way, if you just sort of back out and read the larger context, Jesus is preparing his disciples to go out and deliver the good news. He begins this whole section, chapter 10, Matthew chapter 10, verse 16, by saying to them, I'm sending you out like sheep in the midst of wolves. Well, he says that because the good news is also bad news. And so the people who are benefiting from the way things are, are not going to accept this news. So Jesus wants his followers to be prepared for resistance. He wants his followers to go into these towns and cities and households and preach the availability of God's kingdom for all people and for the way that that will reorder our social environment. And he wants them to be prepared for people to say, oh no, you're not bringing that here. Things are good for me. And so he emphasizes this at the end of our passage, Matthew chapter 10, verse 38, by saying this, whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Those who find their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake will find it. This is where he employs one of his great reversals. So why would we do this? I mean, I don't know if you know this, but all of us are relatively rich. You may not feel like you're rich, but most of us really are. Why would we get behind a message that's bad for us if we have more than we need? Why would we follow a person who says, woe to you who are comfortable and happy and well off because you have received your comfort in full? Why would we follow a person like that if it's really bad news? Well, the answer is because at the end of the day, it's good for all of us, including those who are rich. I love this quote. I'm going to read it to you by uh, Lilla Watson. Lilla Watson is an Aboriginal Australian artist and activist uh, who's done most of her work since the 1960s around advocating for the rights of Aboriginal uh, natives in Australia. And uh, somewhere, somehow, at some point, nobody really seems to know when she first said this, uh, she said something that is really an amazing insight into 
what the gospel's really all about, even though that wasn't her intention. She was being interviewed by somebody who was asking about helping her cause. How can I help your cause? How can we contribute to your cause? How can we help you do what it is that you want to do? And her response was, if you have come here to help me, you're wasting your time. But if you have come because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. One of the really important insights that we, I think, are led to by the gospel is that we are all enslaved by the powers and systems of this world that seek to divide us. And that the really obvious way that the poor are enslaved by it is that they don't have enough to eat and they don't have a place to sleep. But the less obvious enslavement is that if we are rich and comfortable, we're just as trapped and enslaved by that power as the poor are. And it is vitally important that we let that go. It's vitally important to our spiritual health that we let go of the control that we think is saving us and securing us. Jesus' way of saying that is, if you are not willing to take up your cross and follow me, then you're not worthy of me. Because to take up your cross is to willingly relinquish your life for the good that God's kingdom brings to all of us. And that's the call. And I know, it's a sober call. I love, I think it's the G.K. Chesterton quote, Christianity hasn't so much been tried and found wanting as it has been found difficult and left untried. I know, it seems difficult. But we come here to remind ourselves and each other that God's grace makes difficult things easy. It's the easy yoke. That God's mercy invites us into a space where we can do something like follow Christ to the cross of self-sacrifice on behalf of the needs of others. It's why Janelle can come into this place and have to clean feces off of the front steps and have the grace and mercy of God come to her and make her grateful for it. Because that's what God's kingdom and God's gospel do for us. I feel like we're not done, but I'm done. And I feel like it would be good for us to pray for this thing, for the willingness to step into that kind of life, for the willingness to be people who are taking a message of liberation into our spaces, into our world, into our community, knowing that we'll encounter resistance, knowing that people will say, no, 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 don't turn over that apple cart. That's, that's the one I profit from. But we need the strength and the courage of our convictions to do that. And we can all be confident that God's grace will empower us to. So could we pray for that? Uh, and then 
we'll ask the band to come up and we're going to sing together one last time. Father, Holy Spirit, Christ, we come before you. We're grateful for this place where we can enter into a community of people who have gathered around these words. And no matter how challenging or difficult or sobering these words are, we are grateful that you are putting forth a vision of what your gospel is and can accomplish so that we can be united around that. We pray that we would be ready when people resist us, that we would be willing to walk into situations where sometimes there is division or hateful speech or even at times violent action if that's what we're called to and that you would empower us to bring the gospel of liberation and unity and peacemaking into those spaces, having confidence to know that your gospel can and will accomplish what you have ordained. We let go of any sense of burden that it is our responsibility to make anything happen and instead just step into the grace of knowing that you are at work. And we ask that you would help us to be a part of it in some way. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you all please stand with me and let's sing together.